Good evening. I hope you're all doing well. I'm glad to see the interest and positive feedback from those who joined us last week as we began this new series of Faith and Politics. Uh, tonight, we're going to be jumping into some of the policies and issues uh, being discussed in politics today and see what uh, principles God's Word uh, brings to these discussions. But before we do, uh, there are a few things that I would just like to make sure that we all keep in mind as we wade into uh, these uh, deep waters. Now, first, uh, as we said last week, this series is aimed at discussing the biblical principles that we should consider when Christians exercise their voice in political issues. Now, this series will not, I repeat, not advocate uh, a particular political party or candidate. That is not the purpose of uh, this discussion that we're going to be having. Um, if the principles that are discussed during this series seem to suggest either a particular party or candidate, um, it is because that, per that person or group just happens to line up with the principles that are being discussed, uh, not because I'm supporting that person or that party. Again, uh, what we're advocating here is for Christians to think through their political stances and uh, how they vote and how they engage in politics in a biblical way. We're not advocating uh, Republicans or Democrats or anything like that. We're just advocating a biblical worldview uh, going forward. Now, the second thing that I want us to um, um, keep in mind as we begin discussing these various issues is um, I believe it will be really important for us to keep a biblical worldview in mind as it relates to the role of government. Uh, for those who are a little unfamiliar with uh, the term worldview, uh, that is simply a lens by which uh, you view and interpret the world around you. Now, uh, while there is objective truth that applies to all people at all times, um, we rarely see that objective truth objectively. Um, everyone who interacts with the world does so through a grid of their own past experiences, assumptions, and beliefs. And so while there is truth that applies to all people, there is an objective truth uh, to things. When we look at the world and when we engage in the world, often we do so with our own um, uh, lens of seeing things and interpreting things, and that is your particular worldview. And so um, when I talk about our need to approach our discussion on government from a biblical worldview, basically what I, I'm saying is that we need to view the government, we need to uh, view various policies that we're going to be uh, talking about through the lens of Scripture. Now again, we all um, have various ways of seeing life just based on things that we've experienced, but as much as possible, our minds and the way we view the world need to be uh, slowly transformed as we uh, get more into Scripture, as we are transformed more and more in, uh, in Christ's likeness, as we walk with God. All those things should encourage us and enable us to begin seeing uh, more of life through a biblical worldview. So at this time, I would like to just briefly share a few important biblical truths uh, that are going to be important for us to remember as uh, we seek to view these various issues through that biblical worldview that we should all be striving for. So, first, we need to understand that God is sovereignly in control of all of creation, including governing authorities. 
So it's important to remember that God raises up some nations and then he brings other nations down. He guides and directs kings and presidents as he uh, sees fit. So whether we're talking about the United States or Russia or North Korea or Canada or any nation uh, for that matter, God is in control of all of them. We see that throughout scripture uh, on Sundays. We've uh, been going through the book of Daniel. and We see how even though Nebuchadnezzar uh, was uh, reigning and ruling one of the greatest nations at that time, uh, taking over much of the known world, uh, God was still very much in control and, and moving and shaping all of human history towards his purposes. And so when we approach politics, we need to understand that um, no matter what you see going around, no matter what the government is doing or not doing, God is in control, and even with ungodly governments and ungodly rulers, God can still move and shape things according to his purpose. Um, now, secondly, uh, we need to understand that God has given us governments to punish evil and to encourage what is good. Now, this is what Paul teaches in Romans 13 when he says, Let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror for good, uh, to good conduct, but to bad. And then he continues to go on uh, with this principle that basically God, because he's in control, uh, God is a God of order and not chaos. And if we did not have uh, governments and ruling authorities to curb the evil and the sinfulness of people, you would have anarchy. Uh, you see even today on the news uh, where uh, there's civil unrest and people who are uh, pushing back against governing authorities and against the police. And it's just, it's chaos. And that is not something that uh, God uh, condones. It's not something God wants. And so Government authorities are a good thing, but it's important to note here that governments cannot make people good or moral, but they can restrain and punish evil, and that's a good thing. Now, no amount of laws will make people good. Uh, that, that brings us to our next uh, biblical principle that I want us to see in regards to government. Uh, not only uh, can the government not make people good, the government cannot save people or change their hearts. That's what people really need. They don't need more laws. They need a heart change. Now, this is vital for us as Christians to remember. Our hope and chief goal is to see the hearts of people transformed from rebelling against God to loving and following him. Now, this is something that governments cannot accomplish. It's, it's only through the spreading of the gospel and as people come to know uh, Christ, that people's hearts are transformed and people become um, moral and good and godly. Now, the governments, uh, they can help in this, uh, but that is through um, allowing the, the freedom of people to, uh, to follow God and to, uh, to spread the gospel. Uh, that is how governments help to accomplish making people good and moral. The laws don't make people good or moral. You can't command people uh, to be generous, and that therefore makes them generous. You may command them to uh, give money, and they will give money, but that doesn't make them generous. They can still be just as stingy in their hearts, even though they're being forced to give their money uh, to a noteworthy cause. Only God can change 
the human heart. So uh, those are some principles that we need to keep in mind. Now, uh, one last principle principle that I think we need to mention uh, is uh, that God has established um, governments for our good and for restraining evil. And so because of that, we as citizens should respect and obey the government as long as they are not requiring us to sin against God or against our conscience. So all these are kind of tied together. God is in control. Because God is in control, he's established governments uh, to help um, restrain evil. And so we need to obey the government as much as possible because that is what helps God um, to uh, pave the way for people to have the freedom to, to live according to God's principles and spread the gospel. And we should respect that as long as uh, the government is not causing us or instructing us to sin against God or sin against our conscience. Now, this is what Peter uh, writes as it relates to us uh, obeying governments and respecting them. It says this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, remember, Peter is telling us to obey those in authority while he and the Christian church is being persecuted. And so I understand that there are many Christians who live in the world today who live in ungodly um, nations and countries that try to suppress the gospel and God's people. But even Peter was dealing with that. Paul was dealing with that. Most of the first century church were dealing with that. And yet Peter still says here that we are to respect those in authority. That does not mean that we always obey the government, all right? There are times where we have to respectfully disobey the government, but as much as possible, we should, we should honor and respect the government. Peter, in fact, was crucified upside down for his faith, and yet he still says to obey and respect the government. Now, we must remember that this idea of respecting the government and obeying the government has its limits, as we've already said. In Acts, uh, when Peter was uh, being questioned by the ruling authorities there in Jerusalem, uh, they commanded him to stop preaching about Jesus. And then he replied with this, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So here Peter is telling them, listen, uh, you do what you think is right. But we are going to listen to God and we're going to continue to tell others what we've seen and what we've heard. And that is Jesus Christ, him crucified and uh, resurrected for the salvation of mankind. And so as much as possible, we're respectful, we're obedient, as long as they're not commanding us uh, to disobey God or disobey our conscience. Okay. So now with all that said, we're going to begin looking at contemporary issues and policies uh, being discussed by politicians to see what biblical principles apply to those issues and policies. Now, the first thing uh, that we're going to discuss is the issue uh, issues that are related to the protection of human life. Now, this uh, will include things like abortion, uh, euthanasia, uh, capital punishment, and self uh, self defense and uh, ownership of uh, weapons for the purpose of self defense. Now. We're going to begin this discussion tonight, but in all likelihood, because of the depth of uh, these issues, uh, this will be the first part of a long discussion that we're going to have over the next several weeks uh, as it relates to the protection of human life. So to begin, uh, let's examine the issue of abortion. Now, this is an extremely hot 
hot-button issue in our culture and has many different questions and concerns that are linked to it. But the most important question that must be addressed is whether abortion is a murder of a person created in the image of God. And if so, what at what point uh, in the birth process is that, in fact, murder? Now, while the secular world seems to have a difficult time answering that question, Scripture uh, seems to be pretty clear on this matter. According to a biblical worldview, human life begins at conception. So any effort on our part that hinders or terminates life after conception is considered abortion and murder. Okay, let me just say that again because this is a really important point that a lot of what we're going to discuss as it relates to this issue is connected to. According to a biblical worldview, human life begins at conception. And so any effort on our part to hinder or terminate life after conception uh, in a biblical worldview is considered murder and abortion. Okay, So the biblical truth of life uh, at conception can be seen in several uh, areas of scripture. And uh, we see, for instance, in Luke 1, uh, that John the Baptist, when uh, he comes in contact with Mary while she is pregnant um, with Jesus, John the Baptist is uh, still in the womb of uh, his mother Elizabeth. Mary comes to visit. She's now pregnant with Jesus. And when that happens, uh, John the Baptist, it says, leaps within her womb. And so here you see John the Baptist is his own uh, distinct individual who can uh, react to the presence of the Messiah in the womb of Mary. Uh, he can recognize that Jesus is an individual uh, in her womb. This is a miraculous uh, occasion. But again, we see that these two uh, um, children uh, in the womb are distinct individuals and can react to what's going on around them. Another clear example in scripture is Psalm 139, where David says, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Here, David uh, saw his individuality. He was distinct from his mother, and he had a unique personhood that began at conception. Uh, another example is Rebecca back in the Old Testament. Uh, while she was pregnant with Jacob and Esau, uh, she was told that the, uh, the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now here we see uh, that there are two unborn children who are already known by God, and his plan for them has already been uh, proclaimed. And so here we see that these are two distinct individuals with a purpose and are unique in God's eyes. Perhaps the most clear passage of scripture uh, that we see about uh, uh, life beginning at conception uh, is in Exodus 21, where God's word says, uh, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child, uh, so that her children come out, but there is no harm, talking about no harm to the children, uh, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Now catch this next part. But if there is harm, again, to the child, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, this taught that the pre-born child 
was to be given an equal protection under the law. The penalty for harming a preborn child, an unborn child, uh, was just as severe as uh, harming the mother. All right, both were treated as people. Both deserved full protection under the law. All right, it's also worth noting that elsewhere in the Old Testament law, that accidental deaths, if someone uh, were to uh, do something that accidentally, accidentally led to the death of another person, that person who caused it was punished by having to go to what was called a city of refuge, uh, where they were basically under house arrest and they were protected from an avenging family trying to, uh, to enact some form of revenge on them. But here, God places a higher punishment on the accidental death of an unborn child. Instead of exile, it was death. Okay, and so it should be noted that uh, there is no restriction on the number of months uh, the woman was pregnant either. And so here, it's at any point during the pregnancy, if someone were to accidentally cause the death or the termination of a woman's pregnancy, it was death on that person. Okay, and so that uh, shows us right there, and according to a biblical worldview, God sees every child at the moment of conception as a human life created in his image and worthy of protection. Now, we could go on and we could cite more examples, but I think uh, what has been said is sufficient to show that the Bible clearly shows that life begins at conception and, and that abortion is the murder of a human life. Now, before we address some of the implications of this, I would also like to mention not only does scripture teach that life begins at conception, but many prominent scientists in our world today also agree uh, with that assessment. For instance, Dr. Jerome Lejeune, uh, who is a professor of genetics at the University of Descartes in Paris, uh, and who discovered the chromosome pattern for Down syndrome, testified at a judiciary uh, subcommittee by saying this, after fertilization has taken place, a new human being has come into being. This is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. It is a metaphysical. Uh, it is not a metaphysical contention. It is plain experimental evidence. He then goes on to uh, later add, each individual has a very neat beginning at conception. All right, and then uh, Professor uh, Jaime Gordon of the Mayo Clinic also said that by all criteria of modern molecular, molecular biology, life is present from the moment of conception. And then a notable uh, um, doctor who once performed uh, uh, over 60,000 abortions, uh, Dr. Bernard Nathanson, uh, Nathanson, is an internationally uh, known uh, obstetrician and gynecologist uh, who uh, had one of the largest abortion clinics in the Western Hemisphere at one time. Uh, over time, he began using ultrasound technology and decided that he was making a horrible uh, mistake. And so he ended up resigning from uh, his lucrative position at this abortion clinic. And then he later wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine that he was deeply troubled by, quote, his increasing, uh, increasing certainty that I had, in fact, presided over 60,000 deaths, uh, end of quote. Uh, and in his film, The Silent Screen, he, uh, he, was, he later stated that modern technologies have convinced us beyond question that uh, the unborn child is simply another human being, another member of the human community, indistinguishable 
in every way from any of us. And so that just goes to show that not only does Scripture testify uh, that uh, life begins at conception and that it's a human life created in the image of God, but also uh, many very prominent, well-known scientists also testify uh, that scientifically speaking, apart from any religious worldview, uh, that they believe the science backs up that life begins at conception. Now, uh, let us consider for just a moment that uh, there were some kind of uncertainty or doubt as to when human life began. Let us consider that there was uncertainty as when, as to whether or not life begins at maybe 10 weeks or 20 weeks or just when uh, the child is finally uh, birthed. Now, wouldn't the logical thing to do then to be to be cautious and err on the side of caution and protecting the possibility that this may be life? Uh, for example, if you were driving home one night and you were going down a country road and off in the distance, maybe just beyond your headlights, uh, you could see some kind of dark figure in the road. Now, you don't know if this is a person or an animal or simply just kind of uh, some shadow off in the distance. So since you're not sure what it is, do you think that you should speed up? Now, I hope your answer would obviously be no. Okay, you should slow down and proceed with caution because you don't know what it is. It could be a person walking across the road. It could be an animal uh, that you hit. Or like I said, it could be a shadow. We don't know. And because we don't know, we should be cautious. So if we, if we don't know when, if we didn't know uh, when human life began, which I believe as Christians uh, we do, we ought to proceed with caution if we don't know so that we can protect life. If we truly value life, we proceed with caution uh, if we're not sure. Now, even though Scripture clearly teaches that life begins at conception, there are still many questions which need uh, to be addressed, such as uh, what about abortion in the case of rape or incest, or maybe when the mother's life is at risk? Or uh, we need to also ask the question, what about various forms of birth control like the morning after pill? And what can Christians do to address abortion? All these various questions are all tied to uh, this area of abortion, which, um, again, we'll kind of pick up there uh, next week as we, we dive back into this topic. Now, uh, the reason why I want to take a break from uh, this topic for just a moment and our time remaining is because I just want to address uh, what is something, um, whenever I talk about this issue of abortion, uh, this particular um, facet of this discussion weighs heavily on my heart that I just want to take a moment uh, to discuss with each of y'all. Um, I do believe that scripture teaches that abortion is wrong and that Christians should oppose it uh, at all, whenever possible, with, with all the resources that we can. But I also feel that many Christians also forget that women who have abortions also need to be loved and ministered to as well. Many of these women are hurting in some in some in some horrible and, and very significant ways, and many of them regret their decisions. And so, regardless of uh, what they've done, they need to know that God loves them, and so do we. Okay. And so, yes, we need to fight against abortion, but we also we don't need to fall into the trap of thinking that uh, the doctors who perform these ab abortions, the nurses that help out, or the women that have these abortions. Uh, they're the enemy. They're not the enemy. Okay, uh, they're they're making uh, what I believe Scripture teaches uh, is a uh, a horrible act, a horrible sin, to victimize these uh, defenseless 
uh, children created in the image of God. And so we, we do need to feel passionate about the subject. We do need to uh, fight against it. But we need to make sure we do so in a Christ-like way. We need to understand that those people are not the enemy. Okay, The enemy is, is Satan. The enemy is the sin that has pervaded this, uh, uh, this world and has blinded the eyes of so many people. And so we need to love those individuals. We need to speak truth uh, so that they are not continually continually led astray by the lies that the world is putting out there. Okay. And also, uh, one thing that we as Christians need to keep in mind is if we're going to speak out against abortion, and many of these children are, in, uh, if abortion is taken off the table, then there are going to be an influx of children that are born that their parents are not going to uh, either be able to take care of them or want to take care of them. And so if we're going to speak out on abortion, then we also need to speak up about adoption and, and providing for these children, uh, the, these mothers, some of them uh, unwed mothers, some of these single moms. We need to put our, our, um, uh, our, our money and our time and our resources where our mouth are. And if we're going to speak up on abortion, then we need to speak up for some of these other issues as well. Okay, and so as we as we continue to discuss this issue in the upcoming weeks, I hope that we will continue to ask ourselves, uh, what can I do? What tangible things can I do to address this issue? Not just the abortion issue, but also the issue of helping out uh, some of these mothers, helping out uh, some of these children, uh, so that uh, we truly can be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, and to to address this wrong that has been uh, tolerated in our culture and embraced in our culture for far too long. So with that said, I hope that you'll prayerfully uh, thank on and, 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 and uh, discuss and, and um, uh, study this, this policy of abortion, what scripture actually teaches on. Um, and then I hope you'll join us next week as we pick up right back here where we address some of those side uh, issues that are related to abortion that I believe are very pertinent and, and relevant to our day and time. So until then, uh, God bless and take care.